This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 236. We're recording on Thursday, November 16th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky here with Jeff O'Neill, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Can you hear sleigh bells? I can. Ames, Ames requested uh, White Christmas yesterday to watch, and I, we, <sighs> we have a strict day after Thanksgiving, pro, or, or mm-hmm. night of a Thanksgiving at least, prohibition on White Christmas to start, because if we don't, that, that, then it's just, you know, you get Christmas group, we're going to be watching it in June, So, but <laughs> it's coming. It's definitely coming. It feels yep, like winter. I'm in here. that camp, too. I love the holidays, but I firmly believe that you don't start the Christmas music mm-hmm. until Thanksgiving dinner is over. Like, it can be as you get up from Thanksgiving dinner, you turn on the Mariah Carey Merry Christmas album. Mm-hmm. When do you get your tree? Obviously, we get our tree the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Usually, we drive out into the country to a Christmas tree farm, cut it down ourselves, um, and then it takes us a, a day or two to like get it in the house, and it mm-hmm. takes Bob another week or two to like get all the lights on. It's a whole process. Yeah. We um, we do it the Thanksgiving weekend, but we kind of make a. It's kind of a tree trimming. We do. We put it in the stand. We put the lights on. Put on the music. Drink some hot. It's a nice thing. Very good. Yes, get all cozy. I'm ready to like mull cider. Just want to mull some cider. Mold, yeah, definitely. We haven't done the thing of taking the kids out to like a, a farm to cut the thing down. Mm-hmm. Mostly because it's so rainy here that it's basically it's it's. Well, I could just roll around in mud and then go to the grocery store and get a tree and have the same experience. <laughs> basically, yeah. So anyway. it's uh, it's you will, the weird thing about Richmond is that sometimes like there have been a few occasions in the last ten years where we've gone to cut down our Christmas tree the Saturday after Thanksgiving, and I'm wearing like jeans and a tank top because mm. <laughs> it's 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 magically eighty degrees here in the middle of the winter, which is a strange having grown up in the Midwest right. like you and I did, where it's it's cold by Halloween. Like mm. every Halloween in my memory was that I had on a coat over my costume. Uh, it's very odd to be like, why am I getting a sunburn <laughs> while we're picking out a Christmas tree? Yeah, this is why are we soaking wet while we're outside? Uh, the reason <laughs> and we're talking why are we talking about the holidays again? That's what I was going to say. We're talking about the holidays because we, we got to get your holiday recommended re- requests in soon. Like, if you're hearing this, it's going to be Monday-ish or this week. I, we're going to be recording the first of our, our annual two-part holiday recommendation request answer shows um, starting a week from today. I get, wait, a week from today is Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. We we're going to figure have to that figure out. that out for ourselves. Out. Yeah. Are you traveling? Yep, we're going to St. Louis. Okay, well, we'll figure it out later. But at the very least, we're going to start recording sometime before Thanksgiving or around Thanksgiving. And if you want a recommendation request answered by us, send us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. Uh, people have tweeted us a couple on Slack. That That's okay, but if email's the best way because we'll gra- I'll grab it and I'll put it in the document. We'll all both have it looked at. And uh, we'll answer. So if you have a question, a recommendation request for if you're giving a gift, that's great. If you want one for yourself, if you're not giving a gift, just want one to have on hand for somebody, you're giving them a different gift. You're trying to decide whether or not to get them a book if our recommendation request is good enough for you. <laughs> um, you know, that's fine. That's It's fun. We always enjoy doing this show. It's a two-parter. Um, and again, pro- if you get it in by Wednesday, uh, which would be a week from yesterday, which would be the 22nd, I'd say there's a very good chance we'll get to it. Um, but beyond that, there'll be dragons for the possibility of recommendation requests. Any other instruction for them? What what do they need to know? Oh, hmm. Well, it helps us to know like 
you know, who the person is mm-hmm. and what they're into or, what, you know, sort of what you're interested in getting them and why. And that spans a huge range. Like we've had, you know, my friend's teenage daughter has yes. just discovered that she loves reading and here's the book that got her hooked and what else should I do? And that's a really different kind of thing from like my best friend just lost her dad and what kind mm-hmm. of books should I give her? And we had that one and I think like that was the gift show where we both cried yep. <laughs> giving book regs. Um, so I think that's it. You know, it would be interesting, I think, if you also, if anybody wants to feel brave and wants to task us with like, what books should I buy just to have in my house to give when it turns out that I have to give someone a gift I wasn't expecting to get oh. a gift to? <laughs> like, good Swiss armies. Because mm. there's always that one, right? There's always like somebody that gives you a gift that you weren't expecting to get a gift from, and then it's awkward. And just you, you, you just have like your private stash of emergency book gifts. Right, that you know. like that that are good for a lot mm. of people, and so it seems like reasonably personal, even though you didn't plan to give it to this person. I don't know. I think books are a nice host gift too. Ho- I, oh, they I, are. I guess we're supposed to I, hostess gift is the traditional word, but probably that's wrong. Now we shouldn't say that. Mm-hmm. Probably uh, host gift. You know, instead of oh, here, another bottle of free. wine, instead of another bottle of wine, which is no, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you come bring you know holiday cocktail book. That's a different deal. Yes. And there's here, this is my free recommendation for the holiday host gift. If you are going to the home of people who love food, mm. Life is Meals by James Salter and his wife Kay Salter um, is like one entry per day, but I read them like 15 at a time about their marriage and their life in meals, as it's called, of like meals that they cooked, dinner parties that they threw, great meals that they ate while they were traveling, Mm. and the story about these leather-bound journals that they have kept in their kitchen their entire marriage, or that they did keep in their kitchen their entire marriage before he passed away, Mm. of... um, uh, their favorite recipes and like records of these great meals that they had eaten. And it's, uh, it's beautiful. And it had become like, this is my go-to wedding gift for people who like food is a copy of life is meals and a leather bound journal that they can start their food journey into. But I think that works as a host gift as well. That's a wonderful recommendation, but I'm very mad at you because you've now taken Salter off the board for the recommendation request show. You, you used it. You, oh, I have You already haven't. used the vowel. You already There's, asked for a, a, a T. Well. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I don't think that takes him off the board because his books are all so different. Mm-hmm. You know there's a new collection of Salter. Somebody. Did you know this? I did. Coming out? I did. Yeah, I haven't looked at it Somebody yet. please ask us to talk about James Salter. <laughs> <laughs> Which James Salter do you recommend? That's a freebie. <laughs> yeah. It, Just, it, it, was, it was requested by Fedge O'Meal. <laughs> Fedge. <laughs> in yeah, Fedge. <laughs> right. Not at all suspicious name. No. No. Don't know. Sounds like comp- I am a completely normal American. Uh, let's do our sponsors. You know what I can re- recommend without reservation? I do know that you can recommend this. You love I this. I tell you, the Libby train in my life is a rolling. Uh, I, I got my Dan Brown in this week, mm-hmm. my origin. I finished it on oh, Libby. Oh, you did? We have to talk mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, we will. I will have, to, will have to work that. Maybe at the last segment for those of you who A, don't care, or B, don't want it spoiled, or C, think we're ridiculous, or all, D, all of the <laughs> above. Um, so I got, you know, it, I, I, I requested on both digital um, ebook and as a print because I could request holds both and whichever came first. And mm-hmm. the digital one came the day before the print. And so I went and checked out the print and returned it. But I got on my Libby app. It's right there. It's beautiful. And I was in full origin binge mode. And so yes. I, I usually, when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm settling in, I like to read on my iPad. 
That's mm-hmm. my that's my favorite thing to read. But if I'm out, I'm, I was out running around. So my life is about Dan Brown for like two days, right? Oh, so yeah. the nice thing, I'm, I have the Libby on Libby app on my phone and on my iPad. And it syncs automatically, so I can pick up my iPad, and, it li- and, and then I put my iPad down. Then when I'm waiting on the kids five minutes in the car while it's raining, I can read on my phone, and it picks up, switches seamlessly in between. So I don't Beautiful. have to worry about having the right thing. Very nicely done. Um, a lot of great audiobooks I've been listening to recently. One that actually reminded me of the Salter, Provence 1970, about Julia Child and um, James Salter. Oh, I loved that book. Yeah, that, I listened to that on audio. It was great about sort of the rebirth of... You know the the coming American food revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, the, a lot of the titans of that world were summering together in Provence in 1970. Um, and the I guess the grand nephew. I can't remember the guy actually. He's the he's the grand nephew or some relation to M. K. Fisher, who was a writer and a food writer for the New Yorker for a long time and of that circle. Basically, based out of her diaries um, and letters, um, created the, you know a sense of what that was. But Audiobooks. Um, I just Hunger by Roxanne Came just came available to me uh, to listen to on audio. I also I'm listening right now to Young Men in Fire by Norman McLean about his days as a um, working uh, as a firefighter in the Montana wilderness, which is also amazing. It's just a, it's just great. The the app is so smooth. It's so easy to use. Um, if you have a holds list, you know holds limit, you can still tag things like kind of a wish list, like it's a little book. Um, icon that you you just tap that and it adds it to the list so that when you want to replenish your holds list to make sure you always have something hopping, you can just click over there and add things really easily and beautifully over there. I've had nothing but a wonderful experience with Libby. You know, if go check out and see if your Libby is Libby app. Um, go check and see if your local library uses it. Um, it's I. You know what? This holiday season is. It, it used to be a joke. I don't know if it is anymore. That the those of us who were born sort of during or after the digital information revolution would go back home and like fix our family's computer problems over the holidays, right? Like mm-hmm. you go and make sure. <laughs> this is what you can do. Go get your parents, uncles, sisters, whoever who likes to read, go get them the Libby app on their phone or iPad when you're home for the holidays. They'll thank you for it. It's a gift that gives all year. You can go check it out. So you can go to meet.libbyapp.com for more information. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. That's almost like a segment. I was in on that. I know. Well, you know, we used to always love when we had audiobook based sponsors and we would get to pitch our favorite audiobook listens mm-hmm. recently. So I think that's, that's connected. You're brave to be listening to Hunger. I don't think I could have done that. <sighs> I, I'm well, just warning you, Jeff. Talk to me in two have... weeks when I've actually started it. Um, it's, it's, it's sitting there. Uh, as I watch Young Men and Fire tick down. I know what's next, so it's mm-hmm. it's, it's looming. <laughs> I would say it's definitely. I don't know that I mind. could. Uh, I don't know that I could listen to it. That one was <sighs> like pit yeah. of my stomach, or pit in my stomach feeling for most of the reading mm-hmm. experience. But so good. But I don't know. So good. I don't know, man. So good. Uh, in big book news this week, probably the biggest story of the week: the National Book Awards were last night. They were, and interesting winners. Good. There were really good lineups of finalists this year. Most years there are, but a great list this year. And Jasmine Ward won for fiction for the second time. Mm-hmm. Sing Unburied Sing. You've read it, right? We both read this I one. Have. I have. The first great woman novel. to win it twice. Um, the National Book Award for fiction. And she you saw my tweet I saw. I did see that tweet because someone was like, hey, put this on the t-shirt list for Book Riot. And it was like, man, it's not like Jeff doesn't have a direct line to me for t-shirt ideas. Yeah, I know. Well, I was, I was, tweet- I had thought this before, actually. I had this one in the chamber. Um, 
I don't want to use gun metaphors. I had this one in the back of my mind of, you know, the t-shirts that have like noun and noun mm-hmm. and noun and noun, name and name and name and name. This one be Zora and Alice and Tony yep. and Jasmine. And I, cause I, that's where she's positioned. She's she still is so, so young. young. That's it's the other thing. It's like bonkers to think about what the rest of her career is going to be. Yeah, I mean, she's just, I mean, all three, uh, Men We Reaped, Salvage the Bone, and Sing Unburied Sing are, are just, um, to use a Tom Haverford uh, cliche, <laughs> bangers. These are bangers, <laughs> right? You, you don't delete these off your iPod playlist. I mean, these are three for three amazing books. Um, and I don't think early Morrison, a different mm-hmm. style. I mean, they're black women, so that's the comparison, right? Which may be fair and also may be unfair. But early Morrison of the Louis Die and Song of Solomon. And you know, Sula, like, Sing Unburied we'll come right yeah. out of the gate. For Sing Unburied Sing, I think, is about the same level of um, not like sci fi weird, but there are some slightly weird or surreal elements mm-hmm. to Sing Unburied Sing. And I think it's about the same amount of those as Sula. Like, it does feel like she could be building yeah. to a Toni Morrison esque kind of over it's really impressive and she was up against elliot ackerman for dark at the crossing lisa ko for the levers minjin lee for pachinko and carmen maria machado for her body and other parties um which all very impressive works of fiction have you read the machado no i'm saving it for the holidays liberty read it for all the books um and the way that like that show works is if she's reading it, I don't have time to read my stuff and the sure. stuff she's reading too, but I'm saving it for my end of year list because I, by all accounts, I'm going to love it. Have you? Uh, no, just a lot of lit nerd buzz around that one. Mm-hmm. I would say. A lot you of know. good feminist rage fiction. So Yeah. Um, I, don't, I actually haven't even seen what it's about, though I know the name and the author because yeah. people have been talking. I mean, of course it was nominated here as well, but like beyond that, some people that I watch mm-hmm. for what they're talking about. And um, talking for about nonfiction, culture. this one I am not surprised by at all and very well deserving. The Future is no. History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia by Ma- Masha Gessen. Uh, lots of PR around that book, certainly a lot of relevance um, that has won. For poetry, it's Half Light, Collected Poems 1965 to 2016 by Frank Bidar, or Bidart, I'm not completely sure um, how to pronounce that. But also that one had a feeling of... Um, from some friends who were there and who know the poetry group uh, much better than I do said that that kind of also seemed like something of a lifetime achievement award. And then the young Mm -hmm. people's literature um, went to far from the tree by Robin Benway. Um, So good, beautiful list. And the far from the tree, tell me if you have the same sense of I did sort of the, like you and I were, not side eyeing, was raising an eyebrow that the hate you Mm, give didn't mm -hmm. make the finalist list, let alone win. But what we've heard since then from like the YA insider group mm-hmm. is that this was kind of their favorite book. Yes. This is one one thing I was hearing. It's like, mm-hmm. Hey You Give was great, but we think maybe this was better, which is, you know, it doesn't mean it's true. It's just, I found it interesting that that was the rumble. And not rumbling's wrong because it sounds like grousing or something, but like the chatter I was hearing is like, Hey You Give is amazing, a really important book. But Far From the Tree might be my favorite book. Right. Of the year and in terms do, of like you know, an sort of accomplishment young, of a thing. Yes. I guess. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, which is interesting too. All of them very, I mean, Bedard is, I mean, is a lion. I mean, this is in poetry because you do get these collected volumes mm-hmm. being eligible uh, for the, it often is the case where it's an end cap. I think, you know, this happens every now and again with, an, with, a, with a poet where their collected work comes out, they're older and it's a lifetime achievement mm-hmm. award, sort of the Cecil B. DeMille award. If this is the Oscars for books. That yeah. And I'm pretty thing. sure that that's how, what happened with Mary Oliver too, is that she won for new and selected poems. Um, is when she, is she that old? She's, I don't even know. Bedard's pretty old, but she's I don't know not about that Mary old. Oliver. Um, I don't think she's as old as Bedard. 
Um, Mary Oliver is going to live forever, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, she and Tony? <laughs> she was young when she started writing. Yeah, her first collection, I think she was 28. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's, I think she still has, hopefully, very many years left to go. Yeah, somewhere we're going to like put Mary Oliver, Marilyn Robinson, Tony Morrison, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg like into a vault together <laughs> and keep them. Yeah, with like, with, like, with like Ted Williams' head in like the cryogenic chamber or something. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you right. do this. Just, exa- I mean, I don't know what the techn- where we are. The te- um, Elon Musk has something in his basement. You know probably, he right? does. I mean, I'm convinced you know, that dude yeah. is a comic book villain. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's something else. Oh, did you follow any of this live? I didn't. There, I this, did, this know, followed live. This, uh, did you do any? I don't. I'm, I don't care enough. Like, I was yeah. talking to some friends last night about, like, what are you doing this evening? You know, just like the evening check-in text. And a couple of them were like, oh, yeah, I'm watching the National Book Awards. And I had completely forgotten that it was even mm-hmm. then. Like, you watch, like, all this intro stuff. And then they take a – like, they do Lifetime Achievement Awards. And then they take a break for dinner. And the live feed, like, shows everybody just sitting there eating dinner. And that has always just annoyed the crap out of me. (laughs) And it's like 8.30 at night when they're starting dinner. And I'm Mm. old. And all the award winners are going to be like on Twitter or on the book news the first thing the next morning. So... No. And not like that many. It's not like the Oscars that there's like, you know, you don't get to see Best Supporting Actor. Like some of the fun of the Oscars is a bunch of awards. You get to see people, you know, you get to see people up there. Like there's four big awards here. Yeah. And they're like... Be interesting. People give nice speeches afterwards, but you can watch Mm -hmm. all of those on the internet the next day. Like this is also how I watch the Oscars. Like there's not an award Uh, that I care enough about to really watch the whole thing happen. Yeah. I like the Oscars as an event myself. I mean, I kind of enjoy the spectacle mm. of it. Um, I'm just—it made me think of it because I'm looking at the the link we'll put in the show notes to the winners. But they broadcast it live on on uh, Facebook Live, mm-hmm. so um, any of us mere mortals could have watched it. And it says it got 450 thousand views, oh. which Facebook—the way they they count views. There's all the tildes, approximate signs right. in the world attached to that. I don't know. But whatever. But still, that's an interesting number. And that the technology is amazing. That basically you can, you can broadcast internationally your event live mm-hmm. to anyone who wants to watch now. Like it's kind of – you, if you would have said to me that 25 years ago, I'd be like, what right. magic? Uh, so, and, we're, and we're broadcasting from our jetpacks. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Like that's kind of an uh, amazing uh, technology. But, you know, I, I think if – so what, here's the p- question I was going to post to you. We're kind of a light news week, so we're going we're gonna, to mm-hmm. uh, linger on this, maybe just for a moment longer. The, the, the metaphor is like n- Academy Awards, but for books, mm. right? So what would it actually need to feel like that? Well, you need more categories, right? right? Mm-hmm. You need best mystery, yeah. Right? You need best romance. Like, mm-hmm. give the people what they want. And you need some stuff like, you know, most, I think like a mix of kind of the categories that you get on the Oscars and the kinds of categories yeah. that you would get on like the MTV Video Music Awards. Like, the VMAs mm-hmm. always did things, and maybe they still do. I'm too old to watch those. Um, but they used to do like best kiss, you know, and like most. You me- think for this? Like most memorable couple. Like, you don't need best kiss in fiction, mm-hmm. but you need stuff like that, you know, like you could do in, you could do like best mystery, but you could also do like best new detective. Um, right. You know, some stuff that goes deeper into the book nerd experience um, than mm. just, you know, best mystery. But I do think the first step would be some more genre specific breakouts. Right. Um, yeah. And best foreign language film, best 
new work in translation. Sure, Boom, right, there. right. There's one breakout short story collections from novels, yeah. perhaps. Um, there's, I right. think, there's a lot of space, and there's there's so many different kinds. We always talk about this with nonfiction lists of finalists or long lists for book awards mm. about. Re- I mean, how many shades of nonfiction? There are like yes. you run from like the Mary Roach informational experiential thing to like very deeply reported, very serious, mm-hmm. um, big issue nonfiction. And it feels like there are ways to break those out and let books compete against other books that are most similar to them and what they're attempting to do and then be awarded for doing that specific yeah. thing more successfully than anybody else be super easy to break out memoir mm-hmm. or autobiography, right? Because right. then you get the actual person that's about on the stage. Mm-hmm. You could have best humor book, right? And like right? certainly I mean, a, biography you know, is different from autobiography memoir. Yes, And so separate definitely. those, the kind of work that goes into writing a biography is uh, is just a different kind of work. I think there's a lot of room mm. to, to do that. Um, but looks like it was a fun party. I've seen lots of pictures yeah. this morning. Cynthia Nixon hosted, mm-hmm. um, by all accounts, did a great job. Annie Proulx won the was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award. I don't even know what it's called, um, but she had a great line that she didn't start writing until she was fifty eight. So she's like, I don't know if it's really a Lifetime Achievement Award because I didn't start <laughs> writing until I was fifty eight. I guess I got a big round of applause. So it's never too late. Um, Truly, or at least fifty eight isn't too late if you're the the indomitable Annie um, Barkskins. Interesting book. Uh, she has an she's an interesting person, mm-hmm. interesting career. Uh, one of my favorite writers. Um, I was glad. I I guess I didn't hear ahead of time that she was getting an award, so I was pleased to see. Yeah, I didn't hear her that. Up there. I didn't hear that either. And it is nice to see that happen, sort of up against the National Book Awards. Always come along with a like five under thirty five. I think is the thing that they yeah. do. Um, so they award they do a big feature for up-and-coming mm-hmm. young writers, but it's really amazing to be reminded that you don't have to have kicked off your career by the time you're 35 or 29 or whatever um, to really do astonishing and important things in any industry. But books, um, we should remind people like to start at 58 and to have had the kind of career that she's already had. It's just, it's I mean, remarkable. it's magical and uncommon, but it can happen. Because her first book was Accordion Crimes, I guess. That was like 89. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, also Annie Proulx was the winner of the uh, uh, McGonagall lookalike contest, apparently. <laughs> Did you see a picture of her? She she looked like she could have come off like a body double for uh, for uh, <laughs> Professor McGonagall. That's, she looked amazing and awesome, but it was funny. That was that's my first awesome. thought. Like, oh, I, Professor McGonagall in real life winning a Lifetime Achievement Award. I have this thing. I mix up uh, Tom Wolfe and... Um, one of the other Toms in my brain, and I perpetually picture Annie. And the Proulx. other Tom Wolf. <laughs> it's Tom. The other There's two Tom Wolves. So Tom Wolf is the one that wears Tom. the white suit, right? Yes. Who's right. the skinny legs and all Tom? Tom Robbins. Tom. Yes. So those are the Toms that I mix yes. up, and I have. I'm just discovering as we're doing the show that I mix up the Annies too, where I picture Annie Prue as looking like Annie Dillard. Um. Oh, I don't know that I have a mental model of Annie Dillard. Well. Um. But anyway. <laughs> now, now I'm going to look this up. Uh, a mental model of Annie Dillard is really a good show title. <laughs> uh, let's do another sponsor since we we we're in the out of the A section. Mm-hmm. Let's let's do uh, a sponsor and then the B section. Oh, this is also me though. Yep. Yeah. PRH. Speaking of audiobooks, PRH Audio is back. So here here's the deal. If you're looking for a brassy independent female protagonist, you'll love Janet Ivanovich's Stephanie Plum. If you want an experienced ex-CIA man turned president, Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan is the man for you. 
Or perhaps you'd like a Victorian area detective. A Victorian era detective, then Kive Cluster's Isaac Bell is the character you will enjoy. You can go to PenguinRandomHouseAudio.com/thriller-series. Probably easiest to find this in the show notes for a thrilling mystery series that you can get hooked on. So what they're saying is like, get hooked on a series based on the character. You know, the authors are important, but a lot of times, especially in mystery and thriller series, you get you get attached to the the character. Probably more people know. Jack Reacher than who wrote the Jack Reacher character, right? Like, mm-hmm. the, the average person who's seen movies and TV shows knows Jack Ryan maybe more than they know Tom Clancy. So go to, go to the link in the show notes, com slash thriller series for a thrilling mystery series that you can get hooked on. Six major characters that will appeal to any type of listener, from retired cops to bounty hunters to Victorian-era detectives. I now want a retired Victorian-era yes. bounty hunter. Yes. All of a sudden, I just realized that. Um, so we already mentioned Stephanie Plum from Janet Ivanovich, Jack Ryan from Tom Clancy, Isaac Bell from Clive Cussler, Stone Barrington from Stuart Woods, Doc Ford from Randy Wayne White, and Lucas Davenport from John Sanford. Action-packed audiobooks will keep listening from the first book in the series to the newest release. That's the other thing they want to promote, too, is like, you, you got find one you like, there's a bunch more of these that you can get through. Um, the newest release to check out, Hardcore 24, a Stephanie Plum mystery from Janet Ivanovich, and then also Tom Clancy's newest, Power and Empire. Thanks to PRH Audio for sponsoring this and many other episodes of the Book Riot Podcast. I'm feeling extra validated right. now in my like pick your favorite detective for an award category, having just heard that. I like that. that. I like that one. I like best new detective. Boom. Done. Okay. Oh. Sorry, I'm just looking at what are, what's next on the docket. <laughs> that was like a verbal flail. <laughs> Do you Ugh. want to talk about? We can talk about something fun and interesting for a second. Well, before. let's do. No, no. We, we the, the National Book Awards were fun and interesting. That's true. Let's, that's, you know, okay, let's, let's do, do the thing. Well, tell me about the, we got. Well, the thing is, I'm also saying that we've got two of these to deal with. Well, so the, one is U, U.S. Things. based, and the other is a UK situation. I know. I'm just so, saying yeah, that. So we can but talk neither about, of them are lots of fun. Neither of them are super great. Um, and we were wondering when this first one was going to come out because it's usually about this time every year. So yeah. the annual Publishers Weekly Publishing Industry Salary Survey is out. Um, it is an assessment of what happened in 2016. Um, so they have completed gathering data about the year of 2016. And uh, here are sort of the top line bits. Women are still dominating the public, the public, the publishing industry. And they were 74% of the industry in 2015. And it's up to 80%. I know. 89% of editorial jobs are held by women. 79% of operations and production jobs. And these are, this is self-report data. So it's not like comprehensive, but this is what we know about respondents. Um, But predictably it's in management that women's share of the jobs falls in the last year. And it's only in management that women's share of jobs fell in 2015. Women had 54% of management jobs. And then in 2016, it fell to 49%. This comes along with the kicker that those management jobs are traditionally the highest paying. Uh, And that was true again in 2016. The average salary of a management position was $129,000. The median salary for men in management was $127,000, which is $10,000 higher than the median for women. But across all job functions, the median salary for men was $93,000. And the median salary for women was $65,000. So that's a that's a hell of a wage gap. This is, I mean, 
I didn't look at. Is there a comparison for year over year? I mean, this is uh, the, gap the same was, ballpark of what we've always. This gap about. is actually every year we've done yeah, this. The gap's a little bit smaller than it was in 2015 yeah. when the median for men was 96 and for women was 61, but still mm. a very large wage gap. Um, and due largely to that the smaller percentage of publishing jobs held by men are held in the highest paid uh, right. positions. I mean, there's there's two issues. Well, more than two issues. But like the top <laughs> level issues are the the rank and file are women and the management is men, right? And then that mm-hmm. really leads most to most of the difference in men and right. women's salary difference. There is a difference in management for men and women. Um, I don't want to gloss over that. But that is that gap is much smaller than the larger gap mm-hmm. um, of all of them. So it sounds like you know, if you're a publisher and you care about this, and this, you know, frankly, it's something we think about internally in our own company is promoting women to management roles is something you have to think about doing. Like you have to mm-hmm. make it a point to do and figure out how to give people a pathway to be uh, managers and more and more responsible. Um, it's 89% though. I mean, that number... Like there's all kinds of interesting ramifications of that number, both for this number, but how in, how publishing is put together. That I I can't quite get my head around. Like that that many of the of the editorial people are women, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's fascinating. Um, and then why aren't they getting promoted up the ladder? Because I right. I'd like to know what was this number in 1970? Did right. you know what I mean? Like. I just don't know. I don't know enough about publishing history, especially in like the big five U.S. publishing history. Like I'm an mm-hmm. expert in New Zealand publishing from the 70s or something. But like, I just don't know, like, is this number changed or is this the way it has been or have, I don't know. You sir, I, I just am so curious mm-hmm. about this. I, I don't know the answer um, to it. Yeah. And that's, they didn't, either they didn't ask or there weren't enough numbers reported. I'm not sure Mm -hmm. which about folks who are non-binary or don't identify as male or female or folks who are trans. And so one could guess what that might look like, just given how discrimination Mm -hmm. um, can function even in a a systemic and not intentional way. Um, But there's no data about uh, non-binary folks here in the survey. Um, it's interesting. They always ask about the complaints and concerns yeah. that people have. And um, men's major concern, their first concern was increased workload. Mm-hmm. Um, and then low salary was tied with management problems as the second most frequently cited work issue. So men um, are also concerned about their salaries in publishing. But for women, um, it's the... Uh, low salary and then lack of advancement. Mm-hmm. So this, like, sal- the lack of advancement was the second most cited problem uh, by women. It was noted by fifty-two percent of the female respondents, and then lack of recognition for their work was cited by forty-five percent of women mm-hmm. as a reason for frustration with their jobs. So it's not going unnoticed to no. these women who occupy the majority of positions anywhere in publishing that they are hitting a glass ceiling of sorts. Um, it's, you know, and there's an interesting bit here too. It moves into looking at internships, which publishers pay for internships um, and which ones don't mm. um, talk about the necessity of paying for internships so that publishing isn't gated to people who can afford um, because of their background and family of origin to take free internships to kick off their career and how that affects the pipeline has really been big the mm. last few years. So you can see data about that here. And then there's a look at the racial 
initial makeup of publishing, which remains super white. It was 88% white in 2015 and is 87% white uh, in 2016. 2% Black or African American, 2% mixed race, 2% Asian, 5% Hispanic, and 2% cited other. Mm. Um, So the last couple paragraphs here I think are also interesting and slightly suspect um, in that there's been no meaningful change in the um, diversity of boots on the ground mm-hmm. in publishing, but there was quote widespread confidence that publishers were releasing more diverse books. Seventy-two percent of the respondents overall, and sixty-five percent of the respondents who didn't identify as white, said they believed the industry was publishing more diverse titles. Um, so I would like to see how that. I mean, sensed. that's the, that's the stat we still don't have, right? Like right. we were talking about this with Vita the other day, like. We still don't have that one, which is kind of weird. Like, how many books were published by PRH last year? And how many of them were by white people? Seems like, a, I mean, you could even get smaller than that. Like, choose Putnam. I'm just picking an imprint at random. But, like, of all the counting we've been d- doing of late, I don't see that number flying around. Do you? Mm-mm, no. And I was thinking, too, about, like, it's great that people feel like publishing is doing a better job with diversity. But... I'm concerned that this might be one of those situations where like if a woman speaks for like 13% of a meeting, she's perceived as like, or if women speak for, you know, it's a small percentage, Mm -hmm. um, like a small percentage of a meeting, they're perceived as dominating the conversation. Like the situation with diversity in publishing is so abysmal that you could publish like three more books by people of color in a year and have it seem like a big increase because it would be percentage wise, a big increase over what you had been doing before. But I don't want publishing to be like, Oh, well, we published three more books by people of color this year, and that feels like a really good increase. And so we must be doing better. Right. You know, like there's still so much work to be done. And if you're paying attention to it, like there are weeks where on the list of new books out from the big five publishers, there is not one from a person of color. And like I know this because Liberty and I look at those titles every week to come up with what we're going to talk about on all the books. Um, and it's so, I mean, there's no excuse no. in a week when there are like a hundred books coming out that one is by a person of color, that none are by people of color. There's still so much work to be done there. Yeah, Jamie, who um, writes our um, Unusual Suspects newsletter, uh, bemoans constantly mm-hmm. the, the the paucity of people of color releasing mystery and thrillers. Just just to pick a big segment of the market um, yeah. that she, she, I think she struggles to get to 10% you know, in, in doing her yeah. lists and new releases and things like that. So I, I, I bet there's some areas that are making inroads and some places that aren't. And it it, it asks, I guess it, it leads to the question of like, what's the end goal? And I don't think a bunch of white people publishing books by people of color, I mean, that's <laughs> right. better than not, but that's not like the goal we're looking for. That's um, not like, good job, guys, let's yeah, all Yeah, I mean, now. that might be an intermediary step to the to the goal, which... You know, you and I have talked about, I, I don't know that I'm setting the goal for everyone, but for me, it's that the people who work in publishing represent the people mm-hmm. who live in America. The people who are getting published represent somewhat proportionally the people who live in America. Um, that would be, I don't know if that's the end, but that's certainly on the way to the end, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's a goal that I would like to see publishing 
work towards as well. And I'm glad you mentioned the struggle that Jamie has with it for the mystery thriller Mm. newsletter, because that's such a huge chunk of the commercial fiction market. And the other big chunk is romance. Mm. And we did see the numbers that the folks at the Ripped Bodice put out recently about um, representation or the lack thereof of people in color, people of color um, in romance and authors of color in romance. And that was really, really, really low. Mm. Um, So I'm a, I kind of wish that this didn't say that there was widespread confidence that publishers were releasing more diverse books. Like one or two is fine, but mm. it would, you know, it's better than nothing, but we have a long way to go before it's, before it's good, before it's in a place where anyone should feel confident about how publishers are doing with diversity, I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, so. Let's go to, well, I mean, again, this is something I guess we knew people that were not me were more mm-hmm. clued into this than I was. Certainly, that's one thing I've learned over the last few months. But um, when you have a system in which the people in charge are dudes and there's a large retinue of women lower down the ladder, you have yourself a recipe for sexual harassment being endemic. And uh, a survey conducted in the UK um, by the bookseller on sexual harassment within the book industry said that 54 percent of women and thirty four percent of men said they had suffered um, abuse and sexual harassment mm-hmm. in the workplace or related to their job. Which, if you had told me this number three months ago, I would have found it eye popping. I think um, now I am resigned at the, or, or I don't know what what verb exactly, but I'm no longer surprised. It's a horrible number. But I'm not surprised by it. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's a that that felt bleak to say. What do you think about? Where, where <laughs> well, are you with this? I'm not surprised by by this, um, and I I think it feels true to hmm. life. Like, of actually, I, actually, this is the sad sentence. I think the numbers are a little mm. low. Um, I don't know a woman who doesn't have a story about some male coworker saying something inappropriate to her at some point in her career or mm. touching her inappropriately in some way. Um, I know many women who have stories about more violent experiences than that um, or traumatic experiences than that um, in the workplace. But I don't know a woman who doesn't have at least one story about something that from the time she started working until now, something gross that happened with, um, with a man and, in their workplace. So it's maybe this is particular to book industry. Like, I guess it's possible that only 54% of women have had these experiences in their book industry jobs um, that this survey is going to. But if you're talking about like lifetime, Mm. I don't know. It's a hundred percent. Yeah. I don't actually, you know, that's a great question. (laughs) I don't know. Like, is it, in, have you been harassed in your current role or something? Like, what's the constraint? Mm-hmm. I don't actually see the Like, does the it count questions. if you got harassed when you worked in a coffee shop 10 years ago? Or is this specific to the time that you've spent working as a bookseller or at a publisher or in an agency or um, whatever? And we should say the survey from the bookseller is um, UK folks. Yeah. But I wouldn't be surprised that a survey of US publishing people came back with similar or higher numbers. Um, the Whisper Network thing is very mm-hmm. strong. And like it's the day that we've said it a couple of times now since the Weinstein news broke, but like the day is coming that some of these stories are going to start breaking about these repeat offenders and publishing mm-hmm. in the US as well. Um, so, yeah. Uh, when I'm reading verbatim here from the post link in the show notes, if you want to dive into this a little bit more. 
uh, what, where people have been harassed has often been carried out by more senior or high-status male colleagues, professional contacts, authors, or clients, and the targets are often young in junior roles, new in the workplace, or working freelance. It's, that's a power thing. I mean, that's all that's about. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that's all it's about, but that's a dynamic that is predictable. Um, whatever industry, if you have a situation like this, well, and it's all industries. I mean, I don't know why I'm uh, mm-hmm. talking around it, but like that's a structure that's in place in virtually every industry I can think of. It's going to happen. A high proportion of bookseller respondents reported abuse with 61% from uh, from the sector revealing harassment from customers in the shop, colleagues, or visiting authors. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, publicists uh, seem showed a higher than average experience of work-related harassment with 66% saying they experienced. One noted that while incidents with authors were few and far between, it's sad to admit that some authors don't know where to draw the line. And having author care drilled into us as the most important part of what we do, it's very hard to say anything. Incentive to stay quiet. Yep. Um, or disincentive to speak up. Pick your bitter pill. Um some respondents felt that the problem was a generational one caused largely by older men or men in middle age and old school generation publishing. Others felt strongly that younger men were equally involved. I don't, I don't know. This is a situation where we can hope for the old people to go away. I don't think that's where we are. Um, boy, this is, this is just a scrolling despair of quotes here. Anything? I mean, I don't know where else, Rebecca, you want to go with this. Is there anything, <laughs> anything else you else. wanted to, to point out or, or think about with this? <laughs> I don't want no, to dismiss I, I it, but I also don't want to linger um, on it for the point of linger. Yeah, no, I, when I saw this come out, I just wished that Publishers Weekly would add an item about this to their yep. annual thing so that when we're talking about this next year, we can talk about a more complete picture of mm-hmm. gendered experiences in the industry. Um, but yeah, not surprising. Like, it's so disappointingly unsurprising. And those the things go hand in hand. I guess that's why we're, I mean they came out this week, but talking about them together, like the the structural imbalance um, mm-hmm. that we talked about in the Publishers Weekly survey makes this kind of behavior even more prevalent. Um, I don't think if you had an exact equality in pay and role in publishing, it would go away. But I would bet these numbers would be down if it were. Is that a fair postulate? Mm-hmm. I mean. They wouldn't go away, no way, but I think it would be different. Yeah, oh, yes, completely. If women occupy more of the positions of power, mm-hmm. those positions of power are, being, are not being occupied by men who are in the position where they can harass or abuse young women. Um, all, right. all right. Here's an interesting story that I didn't expect at all I did not this week. This um, number one on Amazon's Spanish language book list, having unseated the Spanish language version of Harry Potter and the the Philosopher's Stone is a board book, first of all, about Selena. It's amazing. And it's, I don't know enough about Spanish language publishing in general um, to have ever guessed this. So I would have done poorly no matter what, if you had asked me to guess what unseated Mm -hmm. Harry Potter um, on Amazon's Spanish language book list. Uh, But really... Remarkable. So Selena, it's been two decades um, since she died. Earlier this month, they unveiled her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It broke the attendance record, which was previously set for a Hollywood Walk of Fame for uh, Vicente Fernandez. And now the board book is out by Patty Rodriguez Rodriguez and Ariana Stein. It's called La Vida de Selena. And it's selling like gangbusters. We don't have uh, total sales. Mm-mm. It's hard to imagine a like the U.S. version of this if there's a celebrity. Or you mean the English language? Because this is U.S., right? Yes. Right. 
Uh, no, yeah, uh, yes. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I the don't English know. Language version of like a celebrity that a board hmm. book could outsell Harry Potter. Selena is just such. Yeah, like, it's difficult to so think long. about what have been you know a, a, a pop star that died super young that was that widely beloved within um, a population. It's it's hard to know. Mm-hmm. I mean, the story the, the, that's fascinating to me here. The thing that I guess beyond the Spanish language market. Well, no, it's it's about the Spanish language market is it's easy for us to forget or ignore or overlook how underserved people who speak Spanish in America are by bookstores and libraries mm-hmm. especially. Or bookstores especially, but libraries too. And it's no surprise that we're getting this reported from Amazon because you can go to Amazon no matter what you language you speak, right? You it, it has this thing where you can get served mm-hmm. with your it's, I mean, it really shouldn't even be a, a, a subgroup or a sub-niche or genre or category. Like, 17% of the nation's total population are Hispanic. That's 17%. It's not 1%. 17%. Right. And I guarantee you, if you go into your local bookstore, your independent bookstore, 17% of the titles on the shelves are not Spanish language. Um, I would also guess, though I don't know, and I'd love to be proven wrong or proven right with stats or data or, or even anecdotal stuff, like... In largely Spanish-speaking neighborhoods and communities, are there bookstores? Are they served by independent bookstores? Are they served by Barnes and Nobles? Are they, like, whoa. And so I think in the great debate, in, in the great ledger about whether or not Amazon has been good or bad from publishing, that will mm-hmm. never be answered. Mm-hmm. It's easy for those of us who work in publishing, who work around the mainstream, white, <laughs> right, English, yeah. natively-speaking book world, to remember that Amazon is providing an outlet to buying and acquiring books that did not exist before for them. And that is very difficult to overlook. And it's difficult to understate. And it's difficult in the yay books, yay independent bookstores, books are magic, yeah. rah-rah stuff, which I think mm-hmm. is good and serves a purpose. Remember, too, this kind of story. I don't want to come down too hard on it, but like I think in the ledger about Amazon and online bookstores – this is an underreported story, this kind of stuff, right? Yeah, it's a different kind of book desert. Yes. You know, like it, it, it could be a geographical book desert where what you're saying, right, that neighborhoods with Hispanic populations don't have independent bookstores or don't have Barnes and Nobles. I don't know about those numbers, mm-hmm. but I would believe that. Um, I would not be surprised at all if it turned out that that was true. You'd be shocked in the opposite um, direction if it were like, actually, Barnes would, and Nobles are just as represented <laughs> in Spanish language. Right. I'd be shocked. Frankly. Yeah, that would be totally, it would be wonderful. It would be a great mm-hmm. surprise, but I would be totally shocked. Um, and so to think about populations who aren't served by the, exactly what you're saying, the predominantly white and native English speaking uh, publishing industry that ignores how diverse the country really is and the Mm -hmm. languages that are spoken and the experiences that people come from, Amazon does meet that need. Um, And that's not insignificant Mm -hmm. at all. Um, So I think it's worth pointing out, like that's how you get to a place where a board book about a Hispanic celebrity who's been dead for 20 years and was a huge cultural icon unseats Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that's, that's a story to pay attention to precisely because of what demand there is for these books and how I think underserved that population is by traditional mainline American. What we call publishing, right? Just a really, (laughs) 
yeah, what we call publishing when we talk, what we're talking about when we normally talk about publishing. So I thought that was an important headline to talk about this week on the show, just to get it out there. Um, Where'd you find that, by the way? Where did you find that? Uh, I don't remember seeing this. A contributor hmm. surfaced it on our contributor Slack. I can't remember who it was, but I was scrolling through, I think the bookish news channel. And I was like, that's interesting. No, I asked because (laughs) I want to know in my feed of where I get book news from i was like i didn't see mm. that and i pay attention i mean as you, we both do yeah. but i especially do well because i did used to do critical linking but like i i expect my feed to be pretty representative and that i missed a story like this i'm not happy about and i'd like to fix it <laughs> but i will I'll go see. back and figure it out for you oh no i can um, do the work you know because yeah it was like, it was oh no i, I mean yeah. like i'll i can show you okay. I, i'll figure out where i located it um who surfaced that up i'm pretty sure it was a book right contributor okay. that um i just happened to come across it scrolling through speaking of harry um, potter so we were talking Yes, talking about Harry Potter, talking about great gifts at the top of the show. Uh, Our last sponsor this week is the new fully illustrated edition of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them by none other than J.K. Rowling. This is an essential companion to the Harry Potter novels, as anybody who has read them knows. Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them in the world of Harry Potter is Newt Scamander's classic compendium of magical creatures. It has delighted generations of wizarding readers, and this is a beautiful large-scale edition in full color. So muggles, too, now can have the chance to discover where the rune spore lives, what the puff skein eats, and why shiny objects should always be kept away from the Niffler. Proceeds from the sale of the book go to Comic Relief and J.K. Rowling's international charity Lumos, which will do magic beyond the powers of any wizard. I haven't had a chance to see this one in person yet, but it sounds like a really excellent gift for the Harry Potter fan mm-hmm. in your life. And we all have that person or like 10 of them. <laughs> the Harry Potter universe illustrated stuff is really beautiful. It, re- it really is. And there are a lot, they're great family books. And um, if you have kids or you have grandparents coming into town, it's a great, these are, there's a great things to open up over something mold, right? Uh, when it's, mm-hmm. when it's uh, chilly outside, um, really interesting yeah. stuff. Let's Molson talk about cider. Read your fantastic beasts. Uh, thanks to them for sponsoring the show. There's more. There's as as I was thinking or wondering. There's more um, tea being spilled in Tolkien land, uh, which I think is <laughs> worth talking about. And like, why now? What's going on? I th- I don't know if I mentioned it on the show or it was in the Slack, um, the contributor Slack about the the Tolkien estate. Like, why now? What's going on here? And it felt like there was a seismic shift happening in the Tolkien land. Um, mm-hmm. And a couple of things. One is we learned a couple of things about the Lord of the Rings adaptation that we hinted, of, or not hinted, but we reported on the whispers of, uh, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but we've gotten a little more information. Basically, Amazon has indeed signed a massive deal, $200 million <sighs> licensing deal with the Tolkien estate to produce a series in the middle, I guess we're going to call it the Tolkien verse in Middle Earth, whatever, but it's before Lord of the Rings. It's not a, it's not a reboot of the Lord of the Rings story or a readaptation of, of um, the Peter Jackson stuff that covers that. It's happened to someone before that. Now, that's all we know. Is it between The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings? Is it, you know, the first age of Middle Earth? Is it baby Gandalf? We don't know any of this stuff at this point. Um, but there's some more about it. But the other thing I think it's that's telling is that Christopher Tolkien, Tolkien, sorry, I always get that wrong, um, is retiring as the head of the Tolkien estate. He's 93 years old. He's been the steward, gatekeeper, principal scholar, archivist, holder of the candle um, for his father's work. And this is 
apparently presaging a deluge of licensing stuff. He's been very, I don't know, um, loath to give out too much licensing mm-hmm. stuff. Um, in fact, it was seen as a great coup just to get the Jackson trilogy made. Um, but I think you should gird your loins for all Hobbit things everywhere, which we haven't seen to this yeah. point. You know, like we just haven't seen like Star Wars, you know, like like with Star Wars where it's kind of, it's on cereal boxes and stuff. Right. Like I think that's where this is going. I'm a little sad about that. <sighs> you are? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't had an, ex- like I'm not a diehard Star Wars fan, so I don't Mm-mm. know what it's like to be a Star Wars fan and see Star Wars on a cereal box. But I'm having, maybe I'm having like a bit of an elitist snob moment of like, but these books meant things to me and I don't want to put them on cereal boxes. <laughs> because but, if they're on cereal boxes, they can no longer mean things to you. <laughs> I know, it's no, dumb. I mean, I it's understand. like the lady Ghostbusters yeah. don't negate the original yeah. Ghostbusters. It is, but it's like a weird fan, some sort of fan reaction I'm having to it. I think at the same time, if you put Hobbits on cereal boxes, more people will become aware of these stories and read them. And as we were talking, um, I think we were talking about the details had come out about what the series was going to be in terms of being some kind of a Hobbit prequel um, when we were doing a Slack chat with listeners of this very insiders, podcast. Insiders, I think, yeah, yeah research insiders, this show, yeah. Um, about like, well, it, they better find a way to make women and people of color exist in this mm, world. Mm. And I would love to see those, I would love to see like black lady hobbits on cereal boxes. Let's yes. just make it big uh, and go for it. But interesting, you know, I hadn't really processed that Christopher Tolkien is 93 years old and what that might mean for possibly being suspicious mm-hmm. of streaming services and technology and just for lack of familiarity perhaps um, with what's going on. So it will be interesting to see what happens under new leadership. I'm going to try not to flail about it too much, I guess. Yeah, I think it's the particulars are largely different, but the meta story I think might have a similar structure to the Harper Lee situation, mm-hmm. which as much as we don't like, but like a guardian of the flame um, passing off the torch and that new bearer of the torch having different sensibility. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to be as value neutral as I can <laughs> You're about doing it. A nice I'm struggling job there. mightily. But, you know, that's, I think that this is a new world and someone more versed and comfortable with this new world is going to do more things with it um, for good or for ill, or a lot of it will depend on execution and so on and so forth. I think I was also saying this, like, I don't know if I said it on the show before. If I did, I apologize. The copyright on this ain't going to last forever. Yeah. Um, Tolkien died, you know, you know that I, I, I think I did the math, but I think maybe 20 years or something. So if the Tolkien estate wants to line its coffers, now is a time, you know, to do it. When there's streaming services competing, you've got lots of bidders. Mm-hmm. You've, and also those people are buying, a, it's kind of like signing a player to a long-term deal. You know you've got lots of years. Um, you can do a 15-year project before the copyright comes out. Um, I think there's something to the the limited nature of the Lord of the Rings stuff in pop culture, you know, constraint and specialness go hand in hand, rightly or yeah. wrongly. I mean, that you didn't get it all the time made the stuff that you have special. That doesn't mean that, you know, I, th- that specialness is going away. I think that's going to happen, mm-hmm. whether or not that's in the grand ledger of enjoying these characters, franchises, and stories that is good or bad, I think remains to be seen. You know, I you know I, this. The, the examples I always use when people get nervous about this is like Jane Austen and Sherlock Holmes right. are out of the public are in the public domain. Yeah. 
I mean, they are, and we get interesting stuff we because do, of it. It's true. On the on the whole, I think we're enriched um, with more. I think, yeah. Anyway, that that's that's always my counter. It's like, well, we've gotten some good Sherlock and Austin stuff after the fact. That's fine. I don't think it damages the thing, but we're going to get a lot of it. So buckle mm-hmm. up. Um, anything. Yeah, I'd like to end on a, I think a high note this week because we've we talk about book bannings, we talk about people wanting to get rid of LGBTQ stories or books that address anything that's not like conservative, straight white people. So on the other end of that spectrum this week is that California has become the first state to not just approve, but to require LGBT inclusive history textbook for use in primary schools. Um, On Thursday, which today, um, they approved 10 textbooks for kindergarten through eighth grade students that include coverage of the historical contributions of LGBT people. And they rejected two that failed to include such coverage. Um, Mm. The textbooks failed to abide by California's 2011 fair education law, which requires that schools teach about historical figures who were LGBT or who had disabilities. I was not aware that that law was on the books. I think that's exciting and great and happy to see that it's being enforced. California seems like... Uh, an appropriate and unsurprising place to see this occur as well, given the history of gay activism in San Francisco and Harvey Milk's legacy there. Like imagine learning about the history of California Mm. and not learning about, uh, about that movement and the people who contributed to it. But very cool to see that certainly hope to be seeing this kind of movement uh, in more States and more school districts. Wow. Um, I I mean this is I I really like this story. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm glad to see it. Um I guess they're probably anticipating lawsuits. Probably. Right? I'm sure they're going to get ready for that. Um the State Board of Education approved 10 textbooks for kindergarten through 8th grade students. Yeah, that's amazing. Um anyway, there's a link in the show notes. So yeah, if you're in California, or if you know you more about it, I'd love to, to see hear it. about that. Podcast yeah, I would know this too. I'd like to know this too. Um I guess that's our show. Yeah. Don't forget to send us your Get holiday it. recommendation requests also to podcast at bookriot.com. Yeah, you beat me to it. Show notes for this and all episodes, back episodes of the Book Riot Podcast are at bookriot.com slash listen. Thanks so much to our sponsors, the Fantastic Beasts Illustrated. You can get Libby. Go get Libby. And PRH Audio. Go, go, get, go get yourself a new favorite detective on audio. We've talk, we always talk about this, but we love audiobooks and cooking. We do. You and I do. That's a good thing to do, especially detective. It keeps you moving along. Big, you know, it's a big cooking weekend. The, the, the cooking week, the cooking Super Bowl coming up for all of you. <laughs> yep. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. <laughs>